Hi everybody, I'm Kale Kettle, author of The Boy I Am, and I'm introducing this week's episode of The Book Chain Project, where Sheila Averbuck interviews Amy McCaw, author of Mina and the Undead, which is a YA 90s vampire thriller, and it's a really good chat. I will see you at the end. Don't forget to share, subscribe, and like, and leave us a comment. We'd love to hear your questions for the authors and about the blockchain. Bye for now. See you at the end. Hello, I'm Sheila Averbuck, author of Friend Me, and I am delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of The Book Chain Project, where authors interview each other, and in subsequent weeks, the interviewee becomes the interviewer. I am so excited to uh, introduce Amy McCaw. She is the uh, author of Mina and the Undead, and she's going to join us now. Hey. Book Chain Project. Hey, Hi. Amy. Hi. Can you Hello. hear me? Yes, I can. You are perfect. Good. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Are you excited to talk about Nina and the Undead? Yeah, I am. Thank you for having me. I've got my copy here as well. well Excellent. I wish it could be reversed, but in real life, it's, it's not backwards. No. <laughs> so congratulations on your debut book. How does it feel to be a published YA author? It feels really good. I think it still hasn't quite sunk in. I've seen it in one bookshop, which made it feel a little bit more real. But I think because it came out during lockdown, there was that moment where I went from unpublished one day to publish the next. And yet there was kind of no evidence of it. I'd seen it online, but I hadn't held it in my, in my hands at that point in a bookshop. So I'm still coming around to the idea, but it, it's really exciting. So what was the publishing date of Mina? When did it? First of April. So a couple of weeks before the shops reopened. That's fantastic. Uh, for people who don't know uh, much about the book yet, can you tell us a little bit about what happens in Mina? I can. So Mina and the Undead is a YA murder mystery. It's set in 1995 New Orleans. And Mina goes to visit her sister for the 1995 Vampire Festival. And she's enjoying all the creepy things the city has to offer. She even gets a job in a horror movie mansion with her sister, where she gets to reconnect and reestablish their sort of fading relationship, as well as scaring some tourists. Um, and they're having a great time until some um, Mina finds a dead body at work and somebody's killing people in the style of New Orleans myths and they have to figure out what's going on before Mina becomes the next victim. Dot, dot, dot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so they, they, this is, a lot of this action is taking place in, kind of, well, well, I would think of kind of like the Edinburgh Dungeons, something like that, kind of uh, an attraction where tourists go to pay to be terrified. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think it's that kind of experience. And probably the one that inspired me was on our honeymoon. Um, we went to a place um, in LA and they put us at the front of the crowd and kept shouting honeymoon is ahead. So when we went into this horror mansion, like it wasn't horror movies, it was just kind of a haunted house, but every single room there were people jumping at us. And I've always loved that feeling. And I know some people really don't like it, but I like that moment where the real fear kind of blends into pretend fear and you, you feel, you know, that you're safe, but you have that adrenaline rush anyway. I really like that. And I think that's what I tried to capture in the book. So have you always been a fan of things, scary, scary movies, scary stories? Yeah, I have. So my dad had a video shop in the late 80s, early 90s. Again, the video theme of the book. Becomes yes, real. yes. Yeah, I love that. Rewind. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so I think a lot of that um, came from my childhood where I spent a lot of time in my dad's video shop. I used to help him clean by dusting the cases. But what I was really doing was reading the back of the horror movies and asking when I could watch them. So I think from about age five to eight, I was desperate to watch these films. In my early teens, I think my parents caved and let me watch them. So I don't know whether that early formative desire to be scared was there right from the beginning, but I, I've always loved horror films. I read point horror books in the 90s. And I think from about age nine or 10, that was when I really got into horror. And I just ca I've carried on since then. In my 30s, I still love it. The, this, uh, the way Nina describes it is kind of like a delicious feeling of being scared. And uh, tell, tell me a bit about that, because I cannot watch anything scary. I watch it like this. I can't. I can't. But um, tell me a bit about what appeals to you with that. It's funny, isn't it? Because like, you've read this book, and although it has, I think, slightly scary bits, I don't think it's kind of a straight horror that's really plunging into anything psychological. And I like that mm -hmm. horror that you can go from ones like mine that are light and fun and kind of a bit silly in places, um, with some scary moments, I hope, um, to the really darkly psychological things like, say, C.J. Tudor or Stephen King writes that almost have you questioning yourself and what you believe by the end. And I like that breadth of horror and I like that feeling from the ones like mine that are more like the slasher and the kind of light, not too thought provoking. I like that adrenaline rush. I like the jumps. I like the moment of feeling things, something building. And then when you get the release and the relief of you're scared, but then it's over and it's happened. I just, I love all of that. And I know it's not for everybody, but it's definitely for me. I definitely had some very scary moments in it. I think you do you do scary as well as creepy really well, and you you do replicate that experience of being in, a, you know, a kind of a house of horror attraction where genuinely scary, freaky things around the corner. Isn't there something with with wallpaper with children's hands in it or something? Yeah, the wallpaper. <laughs> yeah, it looks blank. The wallpaper, and then it moves. When it moves, it looks like children's handprints are moving along the wall. I really enjoyed adding those details. I think on just about every edit until my publisher at the end said, no, that's enough. We've done enough rounds of edits. I think on every edit, I tried to add those little details because I enjoy looking for them in books. And I think I enjoyed putting them in there even more. I know there are a lot of uh, writers who uh, watch the BookChain Project videos. So we'd love to hear a little bit about your path to publication. Can you tell us a bit about the journey? Yeah, I can. So I've been writing books for quite a long time. And um so I'm 36 and I had to think about that for a second. Um, but in my early 20s, I was a teacher and I was sort of dabbling at writing, really enjoyed it. But I didn't have loads of time until a few years ago, I became a consultant. So I decided if I'm going to write a book, this is the time. And I'd queried agents before, but I was really determined and I got this idea. And in 2012, I went to New Orleans on holiday and I was just captivated by the city, the scary locations. Um, the you know the tours that I went on I went um, we wandered around the graveyard that Mina visits in the book and I just thought about this place and how stories kind of blend over into fact in New Orleans and it's amazing that people tell you that they saw you know they saw the Comte de Saint-Germain that they know somebody who saw him who is a mythical vampire figure and they'll tell you that vampires are there are still coffins kept in this attic of a um, disused convent and I love the fact that people there, some people, not everybody maybe, but some people definitely believe these stories. Um, so that was the very start. That was the kind of origin of where I got the idea. And then in 2000, I'm just trying to think of the dates now, I think it's 2018, um, I got on a project called Write Mentor, which um, 
quite a few blockchain project authors have had something to do with um so i was one of their first mentees the first year they did it and i worked with an author called marissa noel and i got loads out of it i really improved my manuscript and then as soon as the project finished i um applied to agent and i got my agent um who i'd actually met and i'd pitched to at yark that summer so if you ever get these opportunities i would say as a writer to improve your craft through the mentoring programs to pitch in person even if you don't quite feel ready all of that kind of played a part so i got my age in 2018 got my book deal in 2019 so it's been nearly two years from then for the book to actually come out so i've been waiting for this for quite a long time i'd love to know how the book changed in edits so after like when you worked with your with your agent on it did your agent want changes and then did your editor want changes or yeah so the overall shape of the story i've mentioned before in an event that mina herself um she had that name almost from the beginning i decided that she was from whitby and she was named after the character from dracula and this whole arc of two sisters coming together um who had become estranged kind of coming together to fight this outside force that was a lot of that didn't really change that was in the first draft and my mentor at Right Mentor helped me to improve, I think that feeling of fear that you said and the suspense and the tension, I really worked on that at that stage. And then my agent really got me to home. She's a very editorial agent called um, Sandra Savica. And she, she got me to think about the structure and to make sure that everything was building within a scene, within the whole book, and to make sure that things were really there for a reason. There are diary entries in the book from the 1930s and at first I just got them plopped between chapters. And now that seems like, I don't know why I did that, but she said to me, they're not there for a real reason, so they need to go. And I thought, no, they can't go. So how do I get to keep them? And that really pushed me to think, they, everything in the book needs to be there for a purpose. And in the end, the character ends up reading these diary entries. And I think it gave it a bit more of a sense of purpose. And I think at each stage of editing and each like critique partner I had, I've got a friend called Hannah Cates, who is an amazing author who lives in America and she, in another round of edits, helped me to check that my American details were right, that my New Orleans details were right. So I think the book, to answer in a really a really long answer to a short question, um, I think the shape of it was the same, but other people and pro the process of editing helped me to mold it to what it is now. I think that's one of the big things that writers, when they're working towards publication, have to become comfortable with and it's an inherently uncomfortable process of re-entering the manuscript multiple times and uh, engaging with it again which is an emotional process you know going through the arc of the characters but also having that um ruthlessness to say does this serve the story if it doesn't it has to go even if it's beautifully written i thought something you got really right was the american details the the um Mina's talking to her sister and she's, oh, I can't believe my sister's using American words for things and sweatpants. What do you mean sweatpants? Um, but I thought it was really well done. And I, I have only been to New Orleans once, but I said, Amy must have gone there. You must have gone there because you can tell the way you describe it. And you describe, I thought really beautifully, the, um, the beautiful detailed ironwork almost looks lacy the way it's holding up. The, the ruse and it's so true and it is so hot there i went in july and it was it's just unbelievably hot and the thought of putting on those costumes as they do the dracula costumes i just thought oh no yeah i, I thought it was really well done 
too. And I, I think a lot of that, I can credit people like Hannah Cates, who checked it. Um, I also talked to a New Orleans tour guide um, who's called Rose Sinister on Twitter. And you want, if anybody's interested in gothic macabre subjects, she's amazing to follow. And she can... Who is that again? Who is that again? Rose Sinister. Um, so she's on Instagram and Twitter, I think. Um, but she's brilliant. She, I don't know if she's still a tour guide. I think COVID has kind of stopped a lot of stuff like that happening. Um, but at the time that I was researching the book, she answered a lot of my questions. So she helped with things like expressions people use, um, like different locations that would have been there in the 90s. Um, for example, the graveyard that I visited in 2012, you can no longer visit. So it was getting those details. Because oh. if I'd Googled that now, I would have thought, well, tourists can't go there. So I had to get right. the Orleans details right, but also try and pitch them at the mid 90s. So that was quite a challenge that I set for myself. I realized as soon as I was doing it that it was going to be quite a tall order. She's facing zombies, ghosts, witches and hellhounds with nothing but her wits and a talking cat. It's a bad day for Ivy. Raising Hell by Bryony Pierce out June 2021. Now, for anybody who hasn't read Nina and the Undead yet, it, it's set in 1995, and it is such a feast of 90s details. Everything, and I loved Yukon um, Publishing. They did, I thought they did a fantastic job in this cover. There's even a little uh, a picture of the price here, the price tag, like one of those, it looks like it's, it's partly peeled off. It's just so beautifully done. I was looking at parts of it again today, and and the um, at one stage, her sister goes into the bath with a handful of bath pearls. Do you remember bath pearls? And they would kind of like, you know, kind of dissolve, but not really and be deflated in the bath. They were sort of amazing and disgusting, weren't they? Like you ended up with a slimy little remnant of a ball in That's, it. Yeah, it looks like it's had all the blood sucked out of it. Yeah, exactly. I should have put that in, actually. That's good. <laughs> So speaking of vampires, uh, you know, vampires have been out for a while and they're certainly back. Uh, talk a bit about that. Yeah, so I discovered vampires probably from Interview the Vampire when I was maybe 11 or 12 and had no idea of what some of the, the content, I was quite shocked when I read it as an adult that I, I first found it at such a young age. And I think that at every age you can find things. If you're that kind of person like me who's into gothic details, it's quite fascinating how vampires are you know they come from our mythology and like our culture like over hundreds of years um and they've become part of popular culture so i, th I don't know i think that for me it was into the vampire then it was buffy in my early teens i was 13 when it came out so it was the perfect time for me i don't know you can see on the frame but i've got a buffy library sunnydale library is behind me on the top of my shelf um and then like twilight i was into that and i think the vampires have through the years all the things that have been popular like true blood it just it vampires do keep coming back like they've you know come out yeah, why do we why do we love to fear and and, and love vampires they, they are a lot of the things that you've mentioned like interview with a vampire and and buffy uh, these are sexy vampires they're not they're not terribly i mean they're scary but also you know kind of alluring yeah i think there's different kinds of vampires aren't there i know there's a book that i really like called white out by gabriel dylan and they are purely scary scary vampires and i love them for that that they are you know remorseless merciless they come out at night there's no kind of breaking the rules and my, my vampires sort of bend the rules a little um and i do like that breadth like with horror i think there is there are so many stories that you can tell within that from the twilight sort of sparkly vampire who is a vegetarian 
to the kind of true blood vampires that like Eric is one of my favorite vampire characters. And in his first scene, he kills somebody, ends up drenched in their blood, and he just sort of goes, oh, my hair. You know, like, he's really upset that he <laughs> have my hair. has blood in it. And, and I think that they're fascinating for the variety that you can do with them, the stories you can tell, but they are humans that have been changed in an appealing way in that they can live forever, but it comes at this great cost. And I think that that's quite fascinating as a human, isn't it? What would you do to live forever? Would you want to live forever? There are all these all these questions that start as soon as you start thinking about vampires. I'm going to ask you uh, for your favorite scene or one of your favorite scenes that you wrote in, in Mina. Do you know, I, I had to think. Um, so a lovely website called United by Pop asked me to read one of my favorite extracts from the book and I agonized over it because there's a lot of scenes that I really enjoyed writing. And then there are scenes that I'm proud of that I hated writing because I had to do really bad things to characters that I really like. Um, but I think because of that, it isn't the darker scenes that I enjoy the most. I enjoy those light scenes at the beginning of the book, I think, where the characters are still getting to know each other. And there's a scene where Mina has gone through the mansion macabre. She's enjoyed all these horror movie references and she's feeling quite buzzed. And she realises that she hasn't seen Jared yet. And then she sees him sprawled out on a bed dressed as Lestat from Into the Vampire, which happens to be her favourite book. And he pulls her out of the crowd. And as has happened to me, humiliatingly, at places like Edinburgh Dungeon, you, you're pulled up and you kind of have to take part in the performance, whether you like it or not. And I think that's my favourite scene, just because it was fun. It was kind of a bit silly, a bit sexy. And it pulled together a lot of the things that I like. And then other scenes I enjoyed were later in the book, when the kind of the twists start coming and the reveals start coming. It was really hard to pull all the threads and the, the like, little crumbs I dropped. I had to work out how they were all going to fit to a satisfying conclusion. I think I like the ending for that reason, that it took such effort to get there. And I, I hope that I've managed to catch all the threads. Maybe somebody will tell me if I haven't at some point. Um, but yeah, that's so that. I think it. you did, yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I think the fun light scenes and then the ones that took a lot of crafting, I think are the ones that I feel the proudest of. There is a scene that you will remember when it is, it, it, two of the characters are interviewing a vampire and, and asking this vampire questions and the vampire, you know, I don't want to say if it's male or female, um, is, is getting kind of offended at these questions and kind of rolling their eyes and like some of this is just rumor. I don't know, you know, where, why do people think these things? I thought that was wonderful also because it made me think of the name interview with the vampire, which is, I don't know if you did that consciously, but they were literally interviewing this vampire saying, what about this? And what about that? I thought that was that that was I think that was my favorite scene. I int I always wanted there to be real vampires in the book and as opposed to the kind of people dressing up or people who drink blood and think they are vampires. I wanted there to be the kind of supernatural vampires and I did play with that. I won't say exactly how many vampires in the book because that's part of the fun, but I wanted people to early on I mentioned vampires on the very first page, so I wanted people to know that and then spend the book trying to work out has that character come out in the day? Like, could they, could they be a vampire? Oh, no, that's it's daylight. That They can't be a vampire. And I, I really wanted to play with that. I think I, I, some of the tropes I didn't consciously use and people pointed them out to me and I was like, oh, yeah, that is clever. It's a shame I didn't do that intentionally. Um, but yeah, some of the tropes like that scene that you're referencing, I think it was fun to play about with. And I consciously used diaries when that is a form that in, it was used in Dracula, like one of the early vampire books. I, I wanted to get as much like vampire pop culture in there as I could. So you have to talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is Buffy 
how much was Buffy an, an influence on you or in wanting to write um, these, you know, a, a really strong story with a strong female leads in it, all about vampires, because I was a total Buffy addict. I think Buffy was an influence on me as a person. So I think a lot of the person I became and wanted to be was because of Buffy, which may sound a little sad to somebody who isn't into genre fiction like I am. But I think a lot of people who are part of a fandom, they have that defining thing that they love, whether it's a boy band that they, you know, melted into a puddle when they met them or, um, you know, I don't know, a TV show, a film. But for me, that thing was Buffy. So... I consciously referenced it, but I think also it seeped into who I am as a person. So some of the ways that I write dialogue and the way I wanted to put together this group of friends, like in Buffy, like the Scooby gang. Um, somebody said actually in a review recently that it was like the Scooby gang. And I wasn't sure if they meant Scooby-Doo or the Buffy Scooby gang, but either way, I took it as a compliment. Um, but yeah, I think that some of that was conscious and I really wanted to kind of pay homage to something that I love so much, but then some of it, was kind of just part of who I am because Buffy is, is part of who I am. Looking back at Buffy now, I was re-watching it, apart from being way too monoculturally white, everybody's white, 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 which is weird. Um, looking back at it, the, the other themes and the, and the assertiveness of the characters really works well. The dialogue is so good. And one of the first meetings of Buffy and Angel, who she doesn't yet know is a vampire, I had forgotten that she was... She, she's kind of like doing this press up on the top of a street light and she's getting ready to kick him in the face. I'm like, that is fresh. That is very fresh. And this, this was what, what was this? 1990, I don't know when it came out. But it thing, because I was annoyed that my book, I really wanted my book to be set in 95 because it just tied in with Interview the Vampire and with um, New Orleans' deadliest year in that history was 1994. So I was a bit annoyed. Maybe one of the sequels, Buffy can exist in the universe or Buffy the series. Um, yeah, I remember the first scene of Buffy, any Buffy fan will probably know quite well, is a boy and a girl break into a school and the girls think, oh, we could get in trouble. This is really dangerous. Are we okay? And then they get into the school and he keeps hearing noises and he's freaking out and she's, you know, getting scared. But then she turns around and bites him. And I yes. set the tone for Buffy really well that it just flipped on the head. This sort of helpless, mm -hmm. kind of stereotypical, she was dressed as a schoolgirl with a pleated skirt. And it was sort mm -hmm. of, you know, you, you thought she was going to be a victim and she was the very opposite. And I think that Buffy's mm -hmm. really good at flipping stereotypes and like you said some you know some things haven't necessarily aged perfectly um but I think that it did a lot for um I don't know for me as a teenager it's probably the first gay couple I saw on screen and talked that's what I was thinking too I, I can't think of any other gay couples that were on screen and and, and that were there were women yeah. Maybe gay men couples. Yeah, and certainly those accessible to me in my early teens. Definitely not. And I remember mm -hmm. things like the Point Horror books I read. You know, I'm not sure exactly how racially diverse they were, but they certainly weren't diverse in terms of the relationships. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that Buffy kind of opened my eyes to a lot of things and probably my generation's eyes. And, you know, people who are watching it now, I, I hear teenagers just discovering it for the first time and loving it. And that is great. That makes me really happy. Uh, do you have any other um, gothic or um, or horror books that you love that you would recommend if people love uh, love those they'll love Mina? I do. So I recently did an event with Goldie Moldovsky, um, who wrote a book called The Last Girl in the UK, and it's called The Mary Shelley Club in the US. 
Um, and that is a fantastic book about a girl who gets involved in a society who prank people in the style of horror films. And of course, it starts to take, take a dark turn. Um, so, and it's sort of, I'd say, a horror thriller. So that's a favourite. Um, the Last Girl by Cynthia Murphy is another recent favourite where a girl sort of, it has a similar structure actually to Mina in that um, Neve, the main character, goes to, I think it's London, um, to study drama. And she gets pulled into a murder mystery with a supernatural historical slant. Um, so if you enjoyed Me and the Undead, that is a really good choice. And anything by Dawn Kurtigich or Kat Ellis, they both write fantastic way horror. And they're two of my favourites. So, yeah. And if you ever want to... Kat Ellis. Horror, yeah, Kat Ellis. Pardon? I was just saying Kat Ellis and Dawn Kurtigich. But yeah, if you have, anybody ever wants horror recommendations, please ask me on social media because there are a few that popped in my head, but there's also about 20 others in there trying to get out. We'll put notes uh, later on when this is uh, edited and published in, on the book chain uh, YouTube channel of the resources you're mentioning. And just to remind us, are you are YA Under My Skin on Twitter and Instagram? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and my blog too, if anybody wants to read my reviews. I don't review on there as much as I used to. Um, and I've now got a YouTube channel that I'm using to review books, um, which is under my name. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm on social media all the time, probably too much if anybody wants to chat to me. When do you find time to write? Do you have a certain routine? Mm, that is a good question at the moment. So I work three days a week and I've got a 14 month old toddler who is running, learning to talk and just in everything. So I find time to write when he's asleep, which it doesn't seem like it's very often at the moment. Um, so I write during his naps. I write in the evening. Um, I'm not writing loads at the moment because I'm still kind of riding this amazing wave of Mina promo, which... I'm really grateful for that. I've been able to do quite a few online events. Um, I've got a podcast that I'm doing with them, Fictional Hangover, tomorrow. So I feel like I'm doing a lot of prep for meaner things, but I'm conscious that I'm itching to write the next things as well. So it's a balancing act. And at the moment, I think if one thing is going really well, like the meaner promo, something else ends up having to slide for me anyway. Are you going to continue to write more YA Gothic or are you thinking something else? Yeah, so I've got an idea that I'm working on at the moment, which I think is YA, but it does have that slight adult feel. So I'm not saying I'm 100% sure it'll be YA, but it probably will be. And that is also a gothic murder mystery, but a bit darker than Mina. Um, I've also got a middle grade idea, which probably will be a few years down the line when I can actually focus on something else. Um, but yeah, certainly my next few projects are YA horror, thriller kind of murder mysteries, a bit of a mishmash of the three. You may already know this, but there there is some um, middle grade horror that is really, really scary. I don't, do you know Catherine Arden? Actually, I don't. I thought you were going to say V. Schwab had written an amazing um, middle grade horror series, but no, I haven't heard of her. I came across Catherine Arden because when I wrote Friend Me, um, Catherine Arden's book Small Spaces was one of the ones that Scholastic was telling people, you know, if you like small spaces, you might like Friend Me. Friend Me is a is a thriller mystery but it doesn't have any supernatural elements but Catherine Arden's Small Spaces is one of the scariest middle grade I have ever read. Uh, it, a bunch of kids go on a school trip and the bus gets lost in the kind of neverwhere and then the kids get picked off one by one but they don't die they get turned into scarecrows and it's really really scary um she has written a whole bunch in this uh in this kind of small spaces series but it but definitely possible to do super scary for middle grade what's the other one oh 
doll bones about a haunted doll. Oh, I, I, I like I say I, uh, that horror scares me, but I loved both of those books because they, especially within middle grade, it feels even safer than YA kind of horror gothic. You know, it's going to come right in the end. You know, we're not going to have a stage littered with bodies like Hamlet. I mean, it's 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 going to be okay. But they take you right down the scary, scary road before they bring you home. They sound great. I need to pick those up. I've got a huge pile. Somebody underneath is mentioning Jennifer Killick's books are on my huge to be read pile. Oh, right. Um, yeah. I, I don't know Jennifer Killick. I'll t I must take a note of that. I think it might be Creighton Lake. I could have that wrong. Um, but yeah, so I've definitely heard really good things about her books as well. Now that you are uh, published, how will you deal with or have you thought of how you might deal with reviews, paying attention to reviews? Does one read reviews, ignore them, pretend they don't exist? I'd rather that <laughs> it's part of me thinks I want to pretend they don't exist, but I've been tagged in so many lovely reviews where people have, oh, somebody's saying I was right, it's Crater Lake, Jennifer Killick's book, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, part of me wants to completely ignore them, but there are those I'm tagged in and people 100% got the book and they say, this book feels like it was written for me, I was a teen in the 90s, or I am a teen now and you completely get teenagers, like, that feels really good. And I think if people tag me in a review, I will read it. Um, however, I won't, I've won't. i decided now I won't seek out reviews because I've made the mistake. A review popped up on my timeline and I've not been tagged in it, but it popped up, so I clicked on it. And it wasn't a terrible review, but it just picked at certain things that I thought, oh, I've, I've, that probably wasn't written for me. I'm, I'm not going to seek out reviews again. Um, I have been tagged in a couple and thought, hmm, maybe I shouldn't have been tagged in that. And so far, I mean, maybe there are terrible reviews and I've managed to stay away from them. So far, I've been lucky that I haven't seen any. Um, but there will always be a review, I think, where somebody, if they're critical of something that you yourself think, oh, I, I would love, if given the opportunity, I would do that again. I think that can sting as an author. And no, you can't. You know, I can't go back to this book now. That is it. And I'm still a debut author and I'm still learning. So I think reviews are hard, but they are not necessarily for the author. And I think as soon as the book is out, I think Lainey Taylor said really well that as soon as the book is out, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to readers. So I read the lovely reviews that people have tagged me in, but I try to remember that, that they're not necessarily reviews aren't for me, they're for other readers. The, the, the book is a piece of, um, a piece of art that you're putting out there and it comes to life like a, like a play on a stage coming to life once it's in front of an audience. And it's, a collaborative emotional experience because the reader is bringing their background to it as well. But I think you have given such a feast to people who um, were around in, in the 1990s and it's a real trip backwards. Did it unlock the 90s or memories of the 90s or memories of childhood for you when you were writing certain scenes? Yeah, I mean, because I was a teen in the 90s, that is the period that I remember very vividly. I think the early 2000s are maybe a little hazy and the 80s are definitely hazy because I was a young child. Um, but I think the 90s were that period where I figured out what I like and who I am. And I think a lot of the bands that I listened to in the 90s I still listen to now, a lot of the films that I loved, like oh, Cruel Intentions, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Scream, all those films that were very formative and that I loved, I still watch now. So, yeah, I think... I did, I remembered a lot of the stuff anyway, but doing research, I did tap into some of those things that I'd completely forgotten. Like you said, bath pills. As soon as I researched the body shop, it all came back to me, those little dishes of soap that you could get in the 90s and mm -hmm. bath pills that melted and stuck to the side of your bath. I wanted to, yeah. I wanted it to, I wanted teenagers to go, what is a bath pill? That sounds disgusting. I want one. Or, um, <laughs> you know, and I wanted people sort of my age to 
kind of have that nostalgic feel. So hopefully I've got a good balance between the two. We are getting close to being out of time. We're not quite out of time yet, but I wondered if you have any words of encouragement for um, writers who want to write for teens or middle grade or for, for kids at all. Um, is it possible to get published? It feels impossible. It feels impossible to find a publisher or an agent. How can one keep going? I um, I talked recently to my local newspaper and I've not really thought about the fact that I'm from Doncaster in South Yorkshire and not that many people where I'm from have books published. And they said to me, how do you feel that you've done this and when a lot of publishing opportunities are in London? And actually, I did think about that and I thought, yeah, some of the opportunities may seem like they're for other people. But as far as I'm concerned, I, I did have to work hard at it and I didn't necessarily have, I had some contacts through blogging, but I didn't have sort of any personal in with a publishing agency um, or a literary agency or anything like that um, but it is possible you know it takes a long time it takes a lot of hard work on your writing craft but I think the main thing I did was to find a group of people a unit to support me through the process of yes you will get rejections not everybody will like what you read but as a published author and as a newbie author who was trying to get an agent I think that was really important to me. I needed that network of support and people who would critique my book and push me because I don't believe reviews are for that. I don't think that, you know, that, that you should be gleaning anything from it necessarily to improve your writing unless you want to. But to me, having a critical partner who will push you and stretch you is really important. So I would say it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter if you think, you know, I've got this idea, will it be good enough? You won't know until you write it. And when you first write it, I saw Patrick Ness and he said his first draft is just for him. And if Patrick Ness thinks that he can write a terrible first draft, then it's fine for the rest of us to do it as well. So, yeah, I'd say get that first draft done, improve, find critique partners and then just kind of put it out there. Because at some point, like you said, not everybody will like it. It is art and you just have to let it go and see how it does. I completely agree with that, especially the bit about needing to find a community of writers who you can share your early work with, who can feed back to you as a fellow writer, who, who uses the same tools from the same toolbox, and who can say, I can see what you're trying to do, but as a reader, I'm experiencing it in this way. So if what you're trying to do is A, I'm experiencing B, you might want to go back and look at that a little bit. But, but certainly having that community of writers is, is absolutely um, essential and I would I would agree with you you don't need to be living in London you don't need to live in New York you don't need to have a friend who works in a literary agency or who works in a big publisher just work on your craft stay true to your idea and that's the best that you can do exactly I think that's a really good point to end on and um, can you let us know a bit about who you will be interviewing and um, are uh, why you're excited to speak to them Yes, so I have one of the author's books here. She's called Claire Fayers. And actually, we were matched, I think, I don't know whether um, Kitty, who started the Book Chain Project, I don't know whether she matched us intentionally, but we're actually both really interested in mythology. And my book deals with New Orleans myths and to some extent um, the Whitby kind of Dracula myths. Um, but Claire also deals with um, mythology. In this book, she recommended to me um, out of her, she said it would probably be a good one for us to discuss Stormhound. But she's also written a book that I'm going to buy next um, about Welsh legends and fairy tales. And um, yes, it is really pretty. I love this cover. Somebody's Isn't it beautiful? Stormhound. I love the, uh, the lightning on the cover. 
Yeah, so I'm really excited to talk to Claire about how a book for younger children and a teen book that has some quite dark elements, why have we been drawn to mythology and how can you make that accessible to different audiences? Why, I think Claire's um, drawn on Welsh mythology. I went for mythology from a place I don't live in. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we'll have a really good discussion and that is in a couple of weeks time. I think it's on the 12th of May, um, but I will be chatting about that on social media beforehand. So just a reminder to everyone, do follow the Book Chain Project on Instagram and Twitter. It's the best way to find out about when the next interviews are coming up. Do follow Amy, who is YA Under My Skin. I'm Sheila M. Averbuck on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, everyone, for coming along this evening, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Are you looking for your next scary read? Why not try The Shadow Keepers by Marisa Noel? Shadow creatures have been hunting 16-year-old Georgia Boone from mirrors and other reflective surfaces for 10 years, but no one believes her. An incident lands Georgia in Brickwood Hospital, the UK's most prestigious mental health hospital, where she's forced to face her fear of mirrors and answer the question, are the shadows real or is it all in her head? Hello. Hello. Can you see me okay? Yeah, yeah, you look good. Do I look all right? You look glowing. Thank you. <laughs> um, that was great. You were so brilliant. You've obviously done lots of interviews. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I've done quite a few. Um, it's the first time, though, as a debut author. I've never really done anything like this before. And for my first one, which I think was in January, I was actually chairing the event and I was so nervous. But the second I started, I just decided that actually, who knew? I love doing live events. Um, so yeah, this has been a lovely opportunity and I really enjoyed talking to you as well. I was kind of soaking up your writing advice at the end there. Um, I, I really just, I think you and I are on the same page about that. Uh, writers need to just work on their craft and, and not, not, not put up barriers for themselves and think, well, I'll never get published because I don't live in a big city or these are all things maybe we tell ourselves so we don't have to do the scary thing of putting it out there because it's so scary isn't it it is I mean it was weird um on my launch day um I did an event with Dawn who is the one of the authors I mentioned um yes. I was a bit of an out-of-body experience doing an event with one of my favorite authors but yeah. that morning my husband gave me a video that he'd as a publication present from James Masters can you believe who plays Spike from Buffy <laughs> Um, so you have to watch it. It's on my YouTube channel. Um, look it up. Your Sheila. husband got James Masters to do a video for you? Yes, he did. A four minute monologue on what it means to be an artist. And I think you'd enjoy it because he gives such good advice about what it feels like to be vulnerable and put yourself out there and pour everything into something creatively that you love and then give it to other people and say, do with it what you will. And it, he actually says like a really moving kind of intelligent thing. And obviously I was just a bit speechless that Spike from Buffy was talking about my book and saying my name. So yeah, that was quite- I love him. I love James Marsters so much. I thought he was yeah. the, really after Buffy. I think he was the best thing on Buffy. Yeah, he was amazing. And, um, and he's done some great things. He did um, an audio book for the Dresden Files. He um, is Harry Dresden and I do like those books, but I love the audio because he reads it and does such a great job with all the characters. 
He's, uh, I was reading an interview with him where he was taught, uh, and apologies to anybody who isn't as into Buffy as we are. Um, James Masters was blonde, Spike, uh, British accent, vampire, uh, boyfriend of Drew, who was hilarious. Um, but he thought really deeply about the character and Joss Whedon had said to James Marsters, um, this is just, um, you know, the vampires have no soul and the whole thing is, uh, you know, it's supposed to be a metaphor for being a teenager and the pain you're going through. And, um, you know, don't just remember you have no soul. And James Marsters said to himself, you probably heard him say this before, um, you know, uh, I'm going to ignore that because if I have no soul, then the audience won't connect with me. So he says, I was always trying to kind of bring out the, the, the pain of this character. And, uh, oh, he was absolutely my favorite. Loved him. But, you know, we could probably talk about Buffy for like... Yeah, we could. Maybe we could. We'll make that a whole separate Zoom where we just talk right. about it for an hour. <laughs> so I have a few uh, bonus questions to ask you. Okay. Um, if you could only eat one meal and drink one drink for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh man, that's the hardest question you've asked me yet. <laughs> um, I'm quite a fan of pizza and I feel like you could have a lot of variety in terms of pizza. So you could go for your barbecue chicken, you could have like a kind of fruity pineapple one. So pizza would be the meal, particularly if there are no calories involved, that'd be excellent. Oh, my ice cream. I may as well get the in there. And um, drink, it would be a huge milkshake. Again, variety of flavors, and it's like a pudding in drink. So, can I point out that that's a really American meal? I know, and you know what? I love America, Sheila. I really do. Um, I don't know whether you read on my um, website or anything, but I've I've been to twenty nine states, and my mission is to go to all of them. Um, and I just, you know, I, th I think American culture has taken a hit in the past few years with various one thing or another. Um, but I do love, I go to Disney as many times as I can. And I've been to New York a couple of times, Los Angeles, and I really like it over there. Do you live in America now? No, I live in Scotland. Um, oh. I, I, I left America when I was 21. I lived in Ireland for a long time. Then I moved to Scotland with my husband in 2003. So we've been here ever since. Oh, wow. I, I... We, uh, I'm from uh, Massachusetts originally, but I've gone totally native uh, and living in the UK. I love it. I love it here. But it's nice to be able to go back home too as well. Yeah. I have been to Massachusetts. That's one of my states. You can probably guess I went to Salem when I was there. Yes. My friend lives in Salem and I hadn't realized how oriented it was to all things witchy. Oh, everywhere. You go into the center of Salem and every shop has some witch angle. I loved it. They have a great children's bookstore there, I think, or it's an independent bookstore in Salem. Oh, really? Um, maybe I need to chat to them. Uh, yeah, you really should, actually, because um, they're one of the people that I follow on Instagram. They've got a great bookstore there. Um, so maybe um, you, your answer to my next question will be something American, but what would you say is your spirit animal? I don't know. I always struggle with that question. I've never really given it much thought. In terms of animals I really like, hmm, I do you like monkeys? because they're quite cheeky and I think I like the kind of human quality of them that when you see a baby monkey it's like a human baby and my human baby is one of my favorite people so yeah a little monkey like him and it's an animal with thumbs on a very short list of animal with thumbs yeah exactly um Marvel or DC oh can I say Marvel movies DC TV shows oh, that's a wise <laughs> answer uh Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse, all right, from your Disney love, of course. Yeah, I, I even got married at Disney, so I have to be true to my Mickey. 
You got married at Disney? Yeah, at uh, the Florida Disney. So near the Grand Floridian Hotel, there's a little wedding pavilion and a chapel um, in the middle of the lake. Um, so you go past on the monorail and you see the little chapel where we got married. And yeah, so I really do love Disney that much. <laughs> I have been on that monorail in 1978, and it was a long time ago, but <laughs> there was a, a woman um, sitting in the middle of the grass, waving, wearing a big puffy, you know, kind of like debutante ball gown. And I thought, man, she's got to be hot. I was only eight years old. And um, I was thinking it's like 95 degrees out there. And she's just sitting there waving at the monorail. Anyway, wow, what a great place to get married. Yeah, it was. So um, what three books would you take with you to a desert island or give to an alien who had never been to this planet? I actually have thought a bit about this because I did a YouTube video the other day about my favorite book. So I would have agonized over this in advance of that video, but now I'm, re I'm ready to answer it for you. So first one, Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor, who I mentioned in our book chain. I just think Lainey Taylor is a fantastic, very intelligent author. Her books are completely unique. So I think if I were to give a book to an alien, that would probably be the first one because it's such a shining example of plot and character and human nature I think an alien could learn a lot from that as could we. Uh, Northern Lights by Philip Pullman was one of the books I was already really into reading from the moment I picked up my first book when my mum told me I was a toddler you know sitting on the potty I had a book in my hand um, but yeah Philip Pullman I think was the first author where I loved an author and a series and I waited in agony for the next book to come out after I'd read Northern Lights. Um, and then the third one is an adult book, The Beach by Alex Garland. So again, set in an interesting location, like I chose for my book. Um, uh, the main character, Richard, goes in search of adventure and he ends up in Thailand and hears a story of a beach and he goes to this idyllic beach and finds that it is not all it appeared um, to be initially. And again, I think that that is just, it's a really well-written, unique book and aliens would probably get to see different kinds of people on the beach because it is quite a cross-section of society. It sounds like you are incredibly well-read. We didn't touch on reading as part of writer's craft, but what do you think uh, is the role of reading for a writer? I think the role of reading is important for everybody because I started life as a teacher straight from university and I've read a lot of research about reading, how reading is good for your mental health. Reading is one of the biggest indicators of performance. So children who struggle with reading tend to struggle in their other curriculum subjects as well. Um, and I think as a writer, I personally read everything in my genre. So if I hear that there is a vampire book, I, um, Renee Ardia wrote a book um, similar time to mine called The Beautiful, but hers came out first. And at first I thought, oh no, she's beating me to it. But then I instantly read it because I wanted to see what else was out there and see what I can do with those tropes. Um, so some writers, I think, stay away from their genre because they don't want to emulate it, but I do want to learn from it and see what's out there so that I can grow as a writer, do my own thing with the genre and make it my own. Um, and I think you can learn a lot from reading. Like, I, you know, The Beach is nothing like my book, but you can learn so much about voice and character from that book. Um, Northern Lights is a middle grade book written in the third person, so totally different from mine. But again, the characters in that book are like nothing else. And I think Philip Pullman does a great job of creating a fantasy world. So I just think that if you are an author and say that you don't read, you are missing out on so many aspects of improving your craft. And I think even authors who try to stay clear of the genre, you're missing out because how do you know what you're playing with if you don't read it? Exactly. 
um, whether or not your one is writing genre fiction, I write science fiction, um, but it, whatever genre you're in, you know, whether it's genre, the big G or a little G, uh, mm-hmm. you need to read in your area. So, but also so that you can recommend to your readers what else they might want to read because readers who love to read aren't just going to read your book and then never read anything else. You know, they want to know what else to read. Yeah, I have been to events where the authors, I've asked um, the question at the end, um, a couple of events, what books would you recommend? And sometimes the authors say that, oh, I don't only read YA, but I write it. And obviously that totally works for them because I love their books. But for me, I need to immerse myself in YA fiction to be able to write it and then read bits of other things as well, just because I enjoy it, but also to kind of learn from it. Well, I'm going to say thank you so much for giving us so much time tonight, Amy. I loved talking to you. Congratulations on Mina. And I hope that we will meet in actual person one of these days. Me too. I love Scotland. So maybe that'll be a good excuse to go again and we can say hello in person. That would be great. Okay, well, thank you. And I'll say goodbye for now. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the end of the show. Uh, next week, Amy will be interviewing Claire Fairs, who writes about myths and legends and monsters. So it's a really good matchup of authors there. I really hope we see you then. Don't forget to subscribe, like, share, leave us a comment, and we'll see you next week. Bye. <laughs>